Hello and welcome to the 10th episode in our series of Commercial Litigation Update podcasts. My name is Anna Pratoldi and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Joining me for this podcast are Maura McIntosh, who's a professional support consultant in the litigation team, and Sam Heitlinger, who's an associate in the disputes team. In this edition, I'll outline some interesting decisions on privilege over the past couple of months. Then Maura will cover some upcoming reforms to the disclosure pilot and a recent decision on representative actions. And finally, Sam will look at a couple of recent Supreme Court decisions that will be of interest to commercial clients on liquidated damages and lawful act economic duress, respectively. So, first, privilege. But before I get to the recent decisions, I want to mention our new legal privilege web-based app. Uh, We launched that in September, and it's based on our handy client guide to privilege, which has been very popular with clients over the years, and, and that contains a decision tree to help decide whether any given document is privileged as a matter of English law. So the app is essentially a digital version, which can be accessed from laptop or mobile, and I'd encourage you to give it a go. There's a link to where you can find it on the podcast page, and I should also say there are also links on that page to our blog posts about the various cases and developments we're discussing in this podcast. So, on to the privileged cases. First, Conoco Phillips, which is interesting in showing that in some circumstances you may be able to maintain privilege against an opponent in litigation despite that opponent having access to the privileged material. So the underlying dispute related to the sale of certain companies. As a result of the sale, email accounts of the seller's employees who were transferred across to the buyer had been copied wholesale to the buyer's IT systems. And the the purpose was, of course, to allow the continued conduct of the underlying business of the companies that had been sold. The seller claimed privilege over certain emails and documents within those email accounts and the buyer argued that any privilege had been lost because the documents were no longer confidential as against the buyer. The High Court found that the seller could still claim privilege. Even though the buyer had been given wholesale access to the email accounts, that access wasn't for just any purpose or for the purpose of use in this type of litigation. So essentially the court found there was an implied restriction on use that meant confidentiality was preserved. Now, that's in line with previous decisions where the courts have been willing to find that privilege remained intact, despite privileged material having been shared for a limited purpose, even where there was no express restriction on use. But uh, obviously each case is going to turn on its facts, and this is an area where it really is best to be cautious. So, in this sort of situation, think about whether it it really is necessary to provide access to a database containing privileged documents, or whether the privileged documents can be carved out from the material provided. 
And if access does have to be given, well, then ideally put in place an express agreement limiting use of the material. The next case I want to mention is Sci-Farm and Moorfields Eye Hospital, which illustrates the dangers of referring to privileged material in legal proceedings. The starting point is that the court can order disclosure of any document mentioned in certain types of court document, including statements of case and witness statements. And it is clear that a document can be mentioned, even if it's not actually mentioned by name, so long as there is a direct allusion to it. In this case, the claimant's witness statement said that an employee of the defendant had confirmed certain matters to the claimant's solicitor. The defendant applied for disclosure of the solicitor's attendance notes of their discussions with that employee on the basis that those attendance notes were mentioned in the witness statement. Now, you might think that seems a bit far-fetched, but the High Court was satisfied that although the solicitor's attendance notes were not mentioned expressly, there was a sufficiently direct allusion for there to be an implied mention. The discussions were said to have taken place some years earlier, and so the court said the obvious inference was that the information in the statement must have derived from an attendance note rather than mere memory. The attendance notes would, of course, have been privileged, but the court found that the witness statement had attempted to rely on the documents rather than merely referring in passing to their existence, and so there had been a waiver of privilege, and the court exercised its discretion to order disclosure. So, the obvious message, think very carefully before you refer or even allude to privileged material in court proceedings, since you may be found to have waived privilege more broadly if the court finds there's reliance. And finally, just a mention of the State of Qatar case, where the High Court found that a bank could not claim litigation privilege over an accounting firm's investigation report and associated documents. The court found that although various regulators were investigating the relevant matters by the time the accounting firm was instructed, there was little evidence that the the regulator's position was hostile or that the bank regarded it as hostile or that adversarial, regulatory or civil proceedings were in contemplation at that point. And even if such proceedings were contemplated, the court found the dominant purpose of the report was not for that litigation, but rather to find the facts and satisfy the regulators. Now, this may be seen as a rather harsh decision, particularly on dominant purpose, in effect to find that even if adversarial regulatory proceedings were in contemplation, those proceedings weren't the dominant purpose of the report because it was really aimed at trying to answer the regulator's queries. Well, that that strikes me as quite harsh. You might think that answering the regulator's queries would be seen as part and parcel of the anticipated proceedings in those circumstances. And the idea that finding the facts is a competing purpose at all, seems very odd and arguably contrary to authority. 
But in any case, the decision shows that the courts can interpret the test for litigation privilege quite straightly. I'll now hand over to Maura. Thanks, Anna. So firstly, the disclosure pilot, which has been running in the business and property courts since the beginning of 2019. The pilot's now been extended for another year to the end of 2022. And I expect then a decision is likely to be taken as to the final form of the rules. Back in April, there were some limited amendments made to the pilot rules at Practice Direction 51U, which we flagged in an earlier episode of this podcast. And then in late July, some further and rather more extensive amendments were published. Uh, Those have now been approved by the Civil Procedure Rule Committee, and they're likely to take effect from the 1st of November, although that's still subject to ministerial approval, which could mean, of course, that the start date is delayed beyond that. One of the main changes is to introduce a new streamlined approach to proposing and agreeing lists of issues for disclosure and associated disclosure models, which should make the process more efficient. Essentially, it means the claimant identifies its proposed disclosure models for each of the issues for disclosure that it proposes at the same time as putting forward the draft list of issues and the other parties then comment on all of the proposals at the same time. So I think that will eliminate some of the current back and forth that's inherent in the pilot. Also, there are amendments to uh, discourage excess where Model C disclosure is used. That's disclosure of specific documents or narrow classes of documents. The upshot of the change is that Model C had been interpreted as allowing for broader categories than apparently had been intended, I think understandably given the original wording of the pilot rules. But actually it seems Model C is intended to be very limited indeed and I expect it will be used quite rarely in fact. I think the most obvious instance will be where there are documents such as invoices or plans which can be defined with some precision but um, the rules are being amended to, to make clear the limited nature of Model C. There's also a recognition that greater flexibility is needed for multi-party cases being dealt with under the pilot, uh, because the pilot was really causing all sorts of logistical problems. And so parties are encouraged to engage with one another and with the court at an early stage to try to arrange a, a bespoke timetable and procedure in those sorts of big multi-party disputes. There's also a new separate regime within the pilot for less complex claims, which will generally apply to claims for less than £500,000. So we'll have to wait once these uh, changes come in to see how much difference they uh, make in practice and how far they go to addressing the various concerns that have been expressed about the pilot, including um, the complexity and, and potentially increased costs of dealing with cases under the pilot. The second point I want to cover is the Court of Appeals decision in Jala and Shell, which was handed down last week. Uh, the claimants in that case sought an order for remediation of land in Nigeria affected by an oil spill for which they say the defendants are responsible. Uh, the claimants are two named individuals and the action is said to be brought on behalf of more than 27,000 others as well as 457 communities spreading across an area the size of Belgium. Now, the High Court held that the claims could not proceed using the representative action procedure under CPR 19.6, which allows claims to be brought on behalf of others with the same interest in the claim. The claimants appealed, arguing, among other things, that the case was materially indistinguishable from Lloyd and Google, 
in which the Court of Appeal has allowed an action for alleged data breaches to proceed on behalf of some 4 million iPhone users under CPR 19.6. Now, that case has gone to the Supreme Court and judgment is currently awaited. But the present appeal was able to proceed on the assumption that the Court of Appeal's decision in Lloyd and Gould was correct, since, as the court in Jala and Shell commented, Lloyd and Google represents really the high watermark of the claimant's case that a representative action was appropriate in in, in this case. The Court of Appeal in Jala dismissed the appeal, agreeing with the High Court that the same interest test was not met and the representative action procedure was not appropriate. The present case was quite different from Lloyd and Google, the court said, particularly because issues of limitation, causation and damages would all have to be determined on a claimant-by-claimant basis. And the court said these were core issues which could not be considered just subsidiary to the main issues in the proceedings. So I think that shows that even if the Supreme Court upholds the decision in Lloyd and Google, representative actions will still represent a relatively narrow exception to the general position that the class action regime in this jurisdiction works on an opt-in rather than opt-out basis. And so claimants looking to bring mass environmental tort claims or or really any mass claim in which core issues such as limitation, causation, damages uh, may vary between claimants, I think they're likely to have to consider other procedural options, including, of course, a group litigation order. It's also worth noting that although it didn't affect the judgment in this case, the court described it as ambitious that the claimants were... um, submitting that the High Court could grant a mandatory injunction requiring a a large-scale remediation scheme to be implemented thousands of miles away, or that the court could sensibly police such a scheme. And I, I, I thought that aspect of the decision was quite interesting as well. I should say that there is a separate High Court action being brought for damages arising out of the oil spill, uh, which names the individual claimants and communities as separate parties, rather than seeking to proceed under CPR 19.6. So the present decision doesn't actually affect that separate action, which is still going ahead. Thank you, Maura. I'll now hand over to Sam. Thanks, Anna. The first case I want to talk about is Triple Point Technology and PTT. In this case, the Supreme Court considered the construction of a clause providing for liquidated damages for delay in a contract for the replacement of a software system. The clause provided that if Triple Point, the claimant, failed to deliver the work by a particular time, then it was liable to pay liquidated damages at a daily rate from the due date for delivery up to the date PTT accepts such work. There was a delay and ultimately Triple Point abandoned the project and PTT terminated the contract. Triple Point argued that the liquidated damages clause was not engaged because the clause provided for payment of liquidated damages up to the date the work was accepted. But PTT had never actually accepted the work. The High Court rejected that argument, but the Court of Appeal overturned the High Court's decision. This meant that Triple Point was not liable for liquidated damages. The Court of Appeal decision was quite controversial as it went against what was generally thought to be the orthodox position that 
if there is a termination, liquidated damages can be recovered up to the date of termination and general damages are payable after that point. But in any event, the Supreme Court has now reversed the Court of Appeals decision. The court found that the reference in the clause to the work being accepted simply set the end date for recovery of liquidated damages. In other words, the clause meant that liquidated damages were payable up to the date, if any, that PTT accepted the work. It didn't mean that there had to be acceptance before the clause was engaged. So, essentially, this restores the orthodox position that, in general, liquidated damages will accrue until the contract is terminated. And after that, there may be an entitlement to general damages arising from termination. But of course, because the interpretation of any contract will turn on the wording that is used in the particular context, contracting parties may still want to provide expressly for the effect of termination on liquidated damages to avoid any room for doubt. The next decision I want to talk about is Pakistan International Airline Corporation and Times Travel. This case is a rare instance of the higher courts considering a claim for economic duress, and in particular, lawful act economic duress. A dispute had arisen between the defendant airline and the claimant travel agent over unpaid commission. The airline terminated the contract, as it was entitled to do, and offered terms of reappointment which required the travel agent to waive any claims it might have for commission due under the previous contract. The travel agent agreed, as it would otherwise have gone out of business, and later tried to rescind the new contract for duress and recover the commission it claimed it was owed under the previous contract. The High Court found that the travel agent was entitled to rescind the contract for economic duress, that decision was overturned by the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court dismissed the further appeal. The Supreme Court was unanimous as to the basic elements for establishing liability for economic duress based on a lawful act. These are, number one, the defendant's threat or pressure must have been illegitimate, even though it was lawful. Two, it must have caused the claimant to enter into the contract. And three, the claimant must have had no reasonable alternative but to give in to the threat or pressure. However, there was a significant disagreement between Lord Burroughs and the majority as to what amounts to an illegitimate threat for these purposes. In the view of Lord Burroughs, the threat should be seen as illegitimate if the defendant was acting in bad faith, in the sense that it did not genuinely believe it was entitled to what it was demanding. This was essentially in line with the Court of Appeals reasoning and the basis for its decision that the airline could not be liable because the trial judge had found it genuinely believed it had a defence to the travel agent's claims for commission and therefore the required element of bad faith was missing. The majority on the court went further, 
finding that a bad faith requirement of this sort is not in any event sufficient to establish that a threat was illegitimate for the purposes of the tort. Instead, the test is whether the defendant's conduct was reprehensible in a sense which rendered the enforcement of the contract unconscionable. Questions of good or bad faith may be relevant to that issue, but a finding of bad faith is not in itself sufficient. The important point for commercial parties is that it's clear from the decision that the court will not lightly conclude that a commercial party has made an illegitimate threat in the context of negotiating a commercial contract. And of course, the majority judgment sets a higher threshold than Lord Burroughs would have supported. It should therefore be rare for a commercial contract to be successfully rescinded on the basis of lawful act economic duress. And that's all from me. Back to you, Anna. Thank you, Sam and Maura, and to all of you for listening. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. We'll be back with another update in a couple of months.